Do turn up Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 211, as we come to study it together now. Well, it's generally accepted that when an organisation is going through a hard time, it's really important to present a united front. Uh, We've seen some quite bad examples of that if you've been following the news this week. It's all well and good, for example, a Prime Minister saying, everything's fine, we're getting on with the job. Uh, But when your cabinet is resigning left, right and centre, it somewhat undercuts that message of confidence that you're trying to exude. And it's not just in politics. We see this in lots of spheres of life. If a company is losing money and the CEO appears on the Today programme on Radio 4 saying, well, everyone's working together to steer us through this hard time, but all of his top-level employees are finding new work sort of undercuts that confidence. If a football manager is getting bad results and the chairman of the board says, well, he's got our full confidence, but behind the scenes he's interviewing new candidates to replace him, it undercuts that message of confidence. When, when things are going badly, it's really important that any organisation is able to present a united front, even if often that public display of unity is just masking the chaos that's going on behind the scenes. Well, this morning we're picking up this series in the book of Philippians and we're moving from chapter 1 into, ver- into chapter 2. And last week we finished off by just starting to think about the great theme of unity, one of the great themes of the book of Philippians. We saw it in the example of Paul, how his selfless desire to serve the Philippians is both a model to them and to us. And this morning we see that Paul urges the Philippians to follow that model in how they interact with one another. So his central charge in this section is that, verse 27 of chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the kind of headline of this little section, living gospel-worthy lives. And we see that that will look like being so closely identified with one another and getting the gospel out there to the world around them, that will bring conviction on the people who oppose them. So Paul is saying at the end of chapter 1 there. It's not enough to just project an external image of unity in the Philippian church as they contend for the gospel. Now what Paul is encouraging the church here to do is to make sure that oneness of mind so permeates their whole life as a church, both internally and externally, that people look at them and marvel and are convicted of their own sin and of the reality of the salvation of the Philippian church. I said earlier that in our time together this afternoon, we're going to focus mainly on verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2. And it's there that we see that the end of selfless unity, it's not merely that the outside world is impressed, but that the church glorifies God as they follow the pattern of their Lord. Christ Jesus himself. Here's where we see two of those great questions that I began our studies in Philippians with a couple of weeks ago converging. What does church look like? What does it mean to be a church and to serve one another? And then primarily, who is the Lord Jesus to me? And do I let a deep love for him govern how I live my life day to day? It's in this passage where we see those two great themes brought together. Yes, this is a passage about unity, It's also a wonderful passage extolling the majesty of our Lord. And so I think it's a challenge, it's a passage which will have big challenges for us. 
It's one which will expose areas where we, as individual Christians and as a body of Christians united in a church, will see things that we need to grow in and learn from. But because of the centrality of the Lord Jesus to these verses, this is also a really profoundly life-giving passage. It's one that I pray will cause us all to marvel and delight in the beauty of the Lord Jesus and to long to share in his mind in how we love and serve one another as a church family. So we're going to look at this under two headings this afternoon. Paul gives the Philippians an exhortation to one-mindedness and also a glorious example to follow as they pursue Christ-mindedness. So it's those two headings that we'll look at, an exhortation and an example. So first, the exhortation, one-mindedness, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. And there's a setup there in verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... So we've just been reading in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 that Paul has been preparing the Philippians for a life of suffering service. If they're going to follow Jesus, they're going to be like him in how they suffer like he suffered. As they contend for the gospel, they will face opposition and suffering. And so in the face of that, it's really important that they keep a fearless and united gospel witness right at the center of church life even in the face of fierce opponents. And if those verses are focused on the church's external attitude to opposition, this in chapter 2 is where Paul turns his attention to what the church should look like inside, internally, in the light of gospel-sharing-induced opposition. So again, this is where we see one of our big Philippian words of partnership coming up. The word translated here in verse 1 as participation It's actually the same word, partnership, that we saw back in chapter 1 and we see throughout the letter to the Philippians. Now already in these studies we have seen that partnership is a mutual commitment to the work of proclaiming the gospel both as a local church and then further afield in supporting the work of other churches. And so like the other things that are listed here in verse 1, partnership is a giving. It's because there is participation, because there is partnership in the Spirit, because there is encouragement in Christ, because you are all bound in loving relationship to one another through the central relationship that you all share with God in Christ, because of those things, therefore, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if verse 1 is an appeal to the Philippians' emotions, then what follows in those next couple of verses is a much more active appeal to thought and also to action. So they're urged to be of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind. You can't miss that language of unity, of oneness that Paul uses. Remember the context of active gospel partnership here. In the light of that opposition, they need to keep going in their unity. They need to keep going and actively strive to practice their one-mindedness. Literally to think the same as one another in love, actively striving for true 
tangible oneness as together they make the gospel known. And that oneness of mind that also has really practical outward applications to you. Because the Philippians, as well as being one in mind, are to selflessly look out for the interests of others rather than looking out for number one. It's the really clear message of verses three to four, isn't it? Here's Paul saying that church is not the place for rivalry. It is not the place for one-upmanship. And it's certainly not the place for self-advancement, trying to climb some sort of ladder of good opinion and so to boost our own egos or to feel superior. No, according to Paul, church is the place for choosing, actively choosing to count other people, even people whom society may objectively deem to be lesser than us, to count those people as greater and more significant than ourselves. It's something that the Philippians should be practicing in church life. It's an attitude that should permeate their aims in church life too. A word translated in verse 3 as rivalry refers to a kind of selfish ambition to which fellow Christians presumably become a threat. It's sad, isn't it, when Christians see one another as a threat. There's no place for that in church. Paul says it should also affect their self-assessment in church life. They should... Not try to pursue conceit, literally vain glory, this inflated sense of self that will hinder them from serving others. Instead, their self-assessment shouldn't be one which puts them on top. It should be one of humility. It should be one of wanting to serve and give, as we see in the second half of verse 3. Their aim should be selfless, actively seeking the interests of others. So church for the Philippians is an arena for them to come and think, how this afternoon, how this evening, how this week can I serve and care for my brothers and sisters rather than just being the place where they come to receive help for themselves or worse, the place where they come to selfishly advance their own interests at the cost of the well-being of others. A place where they actively display their one-mindedness. The one-mindedness Paul has been talking about at the end of chapter 1 displayed actively as, as they humbly count other people, even those who may be considered less valuable, as more significant. So all of this is the natural follow-on from Paul's teaching on fearless gospel witness. Because the natural response to facing opposition, pressure from the outside, is surely to turn to self-advancement and self-preservation. And so maybe Paul can envisage a Philippian congregation who just start to creak a little bit when they themselves are in the firing line for the gospel. Now remember, Paul opens this letter overflowing with joy and thanksgiving for the Philippians. This is a church that Paul thinks is doing really, really well. And he even appeals to that fact here, there to complete his joy by doing this. He's already so full of joy for them. So what he's doing here, he's not urging a dramatic course correction, not offering a really stinging rebuke to the Philippian church. Rather, he's just trying to make sure that they stay the course, that they actively preserve and, and, and protect the unity that they already have. Because if there are any slight cracks in church relationships now, and we'll get to some of those a bit later in the letter, 
Well, when they're facing pressure for the sake of the gospel, those little cracks will only deepen and grow and cause ruptures when the opponents come knocking on the door. And just think how damaging it would be. Damaging to the reputation of the gospel, to the reputation of the Lord Jesus himself. If when the opponents arrive at the doors of Philippi Free Church, they look through the windows and they see a church full of people selfishly trying to one-up their fellow believers and pursue their own agendas. They'd rightly think, well, those guys are, are no different from us. It's dog-eat-dog in the world. It's clearly dog-eat-dog in the church. They've got nothing to offer us. Instead, think how much it would serve the gospel in Philippi if an opponent looking on saw a church family who were actively growing in their desire to serve one another, humbly and sacrificially, growing in that desire even as the heat gets turned up and life gets really difficult. So this is a passage that I think gives us pause for thought. First of all, I think it gives us pause to give thanks because any time we see that a church is a family made up of people from different ages and stages in life, different social backgrounds, different cultures and upbringings, locals and incomers united around the gospel, we should give thanks. And we should give particular thanks when across those differences we can see examples of selfless humble service of one another that takes place. Brothers and sisters who really go out of their way to serve people, maybe by faithfully and committedly praying for the well-being of many, or maybe by making a real effort to get to know and encourage as many in the church family as they can, or practically making sure that people who are grieving or unwell or going through a hard time have got food and someone to talk to and someone to stick the kettle on. When our church families are committed to encouraging and serving one another in a context of a shared commitment to contending for the gospel, when we see those things, we should be thankful. But as well as pause for thanks, we have pause for thought too. Because this passage will also, I'm sure, prompt us to think of ways in which we can grow ourselves and as a church. I remember a few years ago, Paul, who's our minister in St. Andrews, he said that his biggest cause for thanksgiving in church life, as he reflected over the last few years, was that he'd seen the church grow. Yes, grow in numbers, but also growing in commitment to serving one another and sharing the gospel. He said if he could choose one thing to give him great, a great call of thanksgiving, it would be that, seeing that growth. And if you were to ask him as well what his biggest prayer point going forward for St. Andrew's Free Church would be, he said, well, it would be seeing the church grow, yes, in numbers, but also in their commitment to serving one another and sharing the gospel. His greatest call of thanksgiving was also his biggest prayer for the life of church going forward. And it's similar here in Philippi. It's similar for us this morning as we reflect on Paul's words. The Apostle Paul, in this case, not Paul, the minister in St. Andrews, even as we rightly give thanks for how we are a church family that has others-focused unity, even as we rightly give thanks for where we see churches exemplifying these kinds of attitudes all around us, 
we also rightly ask ourselves, well, how much more can we, how much more can I be practicing this? And I think that honest self-reflection might show us ways in which this passage reveals how we can all grow in being active in counting others as more important than ourselves. I know that's something I've felt the Lord growing me in over the last 10 years or so, going back to my student days. I've always been really privileged to be part of really warm, encouraging, united, gospel-centered, Christ-honoring churches. And I'm really thankful for that. And I'm really thankful to have been part of churches where church-family relationships are open and warm. But I've also been challenged in the last couple of years as I've thought through a life of ministry on how much I myself have put that warm gospel unity into practice. You see, at any point in the last 10, 12, 15 years of my Christian life, I would have said at any stage, it's really great that I'm part of a church where lots of different people from different ages and stages and backgrounds meet together. I was challenged when I realised how rarely I myself would cross the room and speak to somebody from a different background or of a different age or stage in life. And I would have always said, I'm really glad that my church is so welcoming. Anyone can come through the doors and feel at home there, no matter who you are. Yet sometimes, subconsciously, I might write people off when I saw them coming through the door, think that maybe they had less to offer church life than me because of their character or their gifts or their personality. And I also would have said, it's really important in church that we serve and love one another sacrificially, even when that's difficult, even when that costs. But I myself would be really reluctant to sign up for a serving route or to be part of a Bible study with people that I didn't know very well in case I found that awkward. I notice in all those examples, the heart is in the right place. I genuinely have always loved and been so thankful for welcoming, warm, gospel-centered, diverse churches. And I'm sure we're all thankful for those things. But those are just a few areas where I've been mulling on this over the last couple of years and where I've sought to grow in my own active working out of church unity over the last while. And maybe this afternoon there's some listening who've had similar experiences. And even though we belong to a warm and loving church family, We all have opportunities to grow more and more and more in our love for one another. But I'm aware that a challenge like that can be quite guilt-inducing. And that's why it's a really good thing that that exhortation to one-mindedness is followed up with the example of Christ-mindedness in verses 5 to 11. That's our second heading. So building on these exhortations that he's just given them, Paul now tells the Philippian church to have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus in verse 5. So they're not just to be of one mind generally, they're to share in the mind of Christ himself. So what does that mean? What does it mean to share in the mind of Christ? Well, in answering that question, Paul gives a really vivid reminder of what Christ has done. It's one of those great well-known New Testament passages. I'm sure it's a favourite of many of us listening along this afternoon. Where we see in this poem of Christ's magnificence that lies at the heart of Philippians that the Lord Jesus was humble even though he had every right not to be. 
was asking the children earlier that question, who's the greatest? Obviously, that's a question which relies on context. So there's a quite important golf tournament happening in St Andrews this week. I imagine that back there, if you were to stop a random person in the street and say, who's the greatest? They'd probably say Tiger Woods. Or if you were to go down to London this afternoon and uh, go to a certain tennis venue and say, who's the greatest? They'd probably say Roger Federer. Well, I've mentioned before that I used to live in Newcastle upon time. And I think there that if you stopped anyone in the street, nine times out of ten, and you said, who's the greatest? They would say Alan Shearer, the great Newcastle United goal scorer, record Premier League goal scorer, but probably not for much longer. Now, Alan Shearer is a great man. He's a great hero of mine. I'm a big Newcastle fan. And I lived in Newcastle for five years. And the closest I got to meeting the great man, Alan Shearer, was this one day, I was coming back from my lunch break working for church. I was crossing the road, and uh, I noticed that in front of me at the traffic lights, there was this big Range Rover with tinted windows, quite a, a flashy car. And uh, as I looked through the tinted windows, I could just make out kind of the shape of a, a bald head. And as the car drove off, I saw the, the number plate AS, Alan Shearer, 9, which is the number he wore on his shirt. That was the great man right in front of my eyes. I just had time to take a very quick and blurry photo of the Range Rover speeding away. And that's as close as I ever got to Alan Shearer. And that's because Alan Shearer, as a great man, uses the trappings of his greatness to keep himself away from people like me. So he buys a big expensive car with tinted windows for privacy. He's got a big house with big gates and, and, and dogs to keep intruders out. Not that I've tried to get into his house or anything, it's not too creepy, but he uses the trappings of his greatness, his wealth, his famous success, to remove himself from people, to keep himself set aside. But here we see that the Lord Jesus, uniquely among all the so-called great and good of human history, laid aside the rightful privileges of his greatness. He laid them aside to serve undeserving people like you and like me. We see here that as God the Son, Jesus always knew perfect unity and equality with his Father in the Spirit from before the very foundation of the world. And yet, even though this was true, Jesus willingly chose not to grasp on to any of this lofty status. That's the sense of grasp in verse 6. He willingly relinquished his position, verse 7, to make himself nothing, to take on the form of a servant, to become a human. And it says that he made himself nothing, or literally that he emptied himself. It doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being divine. He didn't put off his godness, as it were. Rather, even while maintaining his divinity, he took on frail humanity. So what a powerful example of humility the Philippians have to follow. One Christmas carol that I love really captures it neatly. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. For the Philippians, Paul is saying, how can you be anything other than humble if this, if this is the Lord whose example you're following? In verse 8 we see that Jesus was also humble to the point of death. The incarnation, that taking on a frail human form, that would be a wondrous thing in and of itself. And so it's truly staggering that the Son of God should choose to take on weak and finite humanity and also, because he was so much more than that, 
also going further, bowing to his father's will and willingly suffering death and God's wrath, things that should rightfully be reserved for ruined sinners. Even in the shame-filled and agonizing death of crucifixion, Jesus is demonstrating his greatness by demonstrating his humility, his deep love for his people, his deep commitment to glorifying his Father. So again, the Philippians' gaze is being drawn here to how astonishing is the humility of their Lord. If there's any part of them thinking, well, I'm all for serving church, but should I really put myself out there for the sake of people who are a bit beneath me? Well, Paul draws their attention to the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who was without sin, who enjoyed perfect equality with God from eternity, and yet loved weak, needy, ruined, and imperfect sinners so much that he willingly laid down his status, laid down his rights to die in their place, taking the judgment they deserve. So how can anyone in Philippi who professes that this Jesus is the Lord whom they love, how can they do anything other than follow in his pattern? As they look around people in church, and they see people who maybe are from a lower social set, or who are more difficult to get along with than their friends, well, they can remember the Lord Jesus. And they can remember that no one, absolutely no one, will ever be less deserving of loving, sacrificial service than they were of Jesus' love and sacrificial service. And we see also in verses 9 to 11 that because Jesus was humble, he was also therefore highly exalted. It's wonderful, of course, that the story didn't end at Calvary, didn't end in the tomb. But because of Jesus' great act of humility, God has highly exalted him. I've mentioned a couple of times that the day of Christ, the certainty of Jesus coming again, is a theme which runs right through the book of Philippians. And there's a powerful reminder of it here, that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who's confirmed here as the suffering, dying Jesus, is also now the one who has been exalted. So whether the name above every name is the name of the Lord himself or the name that God has literally exalted in Jesus, the point here is that there is a day coming when Jesus will return and every knee will bow to him as they should rightfully bow to the Lord God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and God will be glorified through him. That's a really helpful reminder for the Philippians to keep this eternal perspective. This pattern of suffering now, glory to come, that should remind them that sacrificial, humble, others-focused service is worth it now because they have an eternity to look forward to with their Lord. That's why later in Philippians, Paul has no qualms about saying that he continues to labour in his own ministry towards the prize, the reward of finally being with Christ. It's a pattern that the Philippians themselves should follow. It also reminds them that in the context of suffering and opposition, standing firm in following of Christ and therefore Christ-like care for his people is far better than packing it all in for the sake of an easy life. 
opponents who may look all-powerful now, who may seem insurmountable, will one day bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. The heathen nations rage, but he who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. Now it's important to note again, verse 5, that they have this mind already. They have it. And so your Bibles, like mine, probably have the heading, Christ's example of humility. And that's a good heading. It's, a, it's something that uh, I've used in my own headings too. It's an example to follow. But I also want to say that these verses give us so much more than just an example. So much more than that. The Philippians, they do have this wonderful example of humble, sacrificial service to following Christ. But also, he is the one who enables them to live like this. Jesus is both the perfect model of an attitude of humble, sacrificial service. And also the means by which his people are enabled to share in this attitude. So as we turn to application, we once again see calls for thanks here. A passage as rich as this, I think first and foremost, must make us just pause and to marvel at the Lord Jesus and be thankful. I think I've mentioned before that Philippians is one of my favourite books and I always really enjoy getting stuck into it. It's a book that I have taught multiple times in my different jobs across the last 10 years. I love opening it and studying it with other people. It's a great book. And you know, I have taught through Philippians several times and I've missed one key thing. I've taught through it as a book which helps us to be united. That was a big and really helpful thing when I worked in my old job with Christian unions. People from different churches coming together for the gospel. I'd open Philippians and go, we should all be united. Isn't that great? And that's wonderfully true. The importance of partnership and calls to unity and humble serving, those are all big things in Philippians. But one thing that I think I always missed until recently in this wonderful book is how all of these things orbit around the person and work of Christ. One of the commentators puts it really well. I quote him here in full. I have been learning over again at how many points Philippians addresses today's church. I can say without exaggeration that I long for its teaching to be heard and heeded. We need Philippians to challenge, correct, and guide. Yet these things are only byproducts. Calls to unity, teaching about ministry, what are these unless we get back to knowing him, our Lord Jesus, understanding who and what he is, and making him all our joy? This afternoon, I want to say that that should be our first response to all this. Maybe some of us are listening and in our own faith we're feeling a little bit cold, a little bit distant. Or for whatever reason, just starting to lose sight of how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. Well, it's right then that all of us just take a moment now to gaze at him. To gaze at this Jesus, the humble, suffering servant who willingly suffered and died for us. The risen and exalted Lord to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as Lord. We gaze at him and in our hearts we say, praise God, hallelujah, what a saviour we have. Or if we've come here this afternoon as someone who's not yet a Christian, not yet putting their trust in Jesus, I'm aware that maybe the magnificence of Jesus given here isn't always reflected by his people. And maybe that's been your experience. You've known people who've claimed to love this Jesus but haven't lived like it. Well, let me say I'm sorry. 
And let me also invite you to gaze at this Jesus yourself. If he really is who Paul says he is here, is this not someone you would be willing to throw your whole life behind following? Well, as we all gaze at him together, of course, it's right that we long to be more like Jesus. Just like the Philippians, we have the mind of Christ. It's been won for us. And if the first half of this passage shows us that we have room for growth, these verses give us fuel for that growth. If we just think back to my own reflections earlier on my own journey of humble sacrifice, if any of that struck a chord with you, or if it made you think of ways in which you could grow, well, it's important to remember that the solution isn't first and foremost to rush in with a list of practical points of action. No, we're able to count ourselves as more significant than ourselves, others as more significant than ourselves, as we gaze at Christ, as we gaze at him with a joyful and thankful heart. Which again is something that I've been struck by a lot over the last few years, something that I find really challenging and also deeply life-giving and profoundly helpful because I find that myself when I'm tempted to keep my church family at arm's length or to be reluctant to serve in uncomfortable ways I myself have been frequently reminded that nobody will ever be less deserving of my love and service than I was of Christ and when I'm inclined to have a high and inflated opinion of myself and to think that I'm more valuable in church life than others it's a really embarrassing and slightly pathetic attitude to have, but when I'm tempted to go in that direction, well, here I'm reminded that Jesus' attitude, as one who has always known equality with God himself, God the Father, his attitude was to humble himself to death, precisely because people like me have nothing to offer in our salvation. So the thing I keep coming back to is how can I, and so how can we, do anything other than lay down our rights, lay down our status, our very lives in serving one another? How can we do anything other than that when we follow such a glorious and majestic Saviour who has done so much more for us? Again, the aim here isn't that we all leave feeling guilty and beating ourselves up for how we feel to be Christ-like. We don't despair but we do gaze at him and become more thankful for what a saviour he is. Thankful for the work that he has done in us and is doing in us as individuals and as a church family. And as we do that, we pray and long that more and more God would be at work in us by his spirit to make us more like this Jesus. As we come to a close this afternoon, isn't that what we just long for. As we read of who Jesus is and what he's done here, wouldn't that be a wonderful prayer to pray that we all leave here wanting to be more like him today and all the days we walk with him on earth. Well, let's stand and we'll pray that together now as we close. God, our Father, we thank you for all the ways in which we do see warm unity in our churches we're also sorry for the ways in which we are selfish or self-serving in our approach to church life and so this afternoon as we gaze together at christ we pray that in your mercy you would expose more of the ways in which we feel to be like him we pray that you would help us with 
thanksgiving, to serve and to love one another. And Father, most of all, we long and pray that by your Spirit you would make us more like this Lord whom we love. Give us a deeper love for him. Conform us more into his likeness, we pray. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.